because it's Father's Day, I thought about taking just a week here to address the subject to fathers. Many of you are fathers. Certainly this could be addressed to to single men as well, but it is Father's Day, so I'll, I'll at least push part of my teaching towards that. And so what I've described for us today, and at least my heart took us to, is to give us an inside look at a man in the Bible who had it all. Sometimes we use that phrase, this guy had it all. Well, this guy really did have it all. The amazing thing when we look at this particular biblical character is that though he had all things, he was unsatisfied. And this man provides us, I believe, with one of the greatest insights in all of the scripture to men in general and certainly to fathers specifically. I want you to open your Bibles this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to scan that wonderful book today just briefly, looking at specifically chapter 2 and chapter 12. The man I am talking about, of course, is Solomon, or we refer to him as King Solomon. And what Ecclesiastes does, as he is the author, presents the painful autobiography of Solomon, who frankly, for much of his life, squandered God's blessing on his own personal pleasure rather than spending it for God's glory. Solomon, as you know, we called him King Solomon. He is the son of King David. He is King David's 10th son. He is the second son of Bathsheba. And just so you know, there are scholars who would believe that when Solomon took over the throne took that kingdom, how old was he? Do you ever, you ever think that? You're thinking of Solomon, and you're thinking of the biblical character, but we believe as we look within the chronologies that likely he was between 16 and 18. So King David, through a series of circumstances, bypassed other sons and gave to Solomon the reins, if you will, of the kingdom. But one said of Solomon that the life of Solomon exemplifies the cul-de-sac of mankind's undeniable search for satisfaction. As the son of King David, he had fame and he had a noble heritage. As a man, he had unequaled intellectual capabilities. You know that. He was given wisdom. As a king, he had absolute power and authority. And as the richest monarch in Israel's history, he had access to inexhaustible wealth. I mean, when you begin to look at the portrait of this man, I mean, he had the popularity, the brains, the means, the money to do whatever he wanted. But at the end of it all, Solomon discovered it was nothing more than a facade, His reflections here in Ecclesiastes, his conclusion based on the pain and disappointment of his own personal experiences are recorded for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is his autobiography and it serves as a reminder for everyone and to anyone who might be tempted to think that satisfaction can be bought. Listen, take it from one of the richest smartest, 
most powerful men, man who ever lived, and you can't find satisfaction, he will tell us, anywhere other than God. And so men and fathers, grandfathers, single men, he writes to warn you of the dangerous path of pleasure. And then he provides really a a path that is pleasing to God. Okay? There's a path of pleasure, the painful path, and then a path to pleasing God. And in doing so, Solomon gives to us the secret of a godly father. It was just a few months ago that on Mother's Day, I taught on the secret of a godly mother. That, of course, is online, and all the stuff that we teach from this pulpit is online. You can go listen to that. And we talked about the secret of a godly mother being from Proverbs 31, that she fears the Lord. So I thought it might be appropriate here on Father's Day just to step back from the Gospel of John for one week and address the secret of a godly father. And what I want to do this morning is look at two ambitions in Solomon's life, okay? First, as it's there on your notes, the futile ambition of pleasing self. And then secondly, the fulfilling ambition of pleasing God. And I'm asking you men today, asking you fathers, asking you in junior high, asking those in high school and those who are elderly maybe, what ambition are you pursuing even this day? And, and so it, may it serve us. My prayer is on Father's Day. So herein lies the secret of a godly man, the secret of a godly father. And Solomon's going to reveal it to us. But if we just took a few moments at this first ambition, look with me at the futile ambition of pleasing self. Look over to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The futile ambition of pleasing self. And I want to just highlight here for you briefly eight futile ambitions found in chapter 2. I mean, when you begin to look at Solomon's early life, he paints it for us here in vivid colors. His ambition was wrong. His ambition was consumed with self. Let me walk through these with you rather quickly. First, false ambition or futile ambition is the ambition of pleasure. Pleasure. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, did Solomon in his heart, I said in my heart, come now and I will test you with pleasure Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. Here he set out on a goal of pleasure. He set his heart out on pleasure. He began to test that theme of pleasure is what it says. I mean, this in many ways has become the world's motto. You only live once in life. The commercial used to ring out when I grew up. So go for the gusto. And here was this man as he set out the richest man ever that had lived at this time and he gave his life to a life of wanton pleasure. In fact, it was so strong. Look down at chapter 2 and verse 10. Here's what Solomon said. He said, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. 
I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. Basically what he's saying, Grace Church, if he saw it, he got it. It's not a matter of him coveting something. Whatever he saw, he pursued. Whatever he wanted, he got. Whatever he went after, he found it to be his. And so he began to live this life, basing his life, number one, on pleasure. But it wasn't just that. Secondly, look at the second futile ambition. I just call it laughter or even the thought of entertainment. Look what he said in 2.2. He said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? And so he began to pursue, did Solomon, in his own life, a life that would fill himself with entertainment and with laughter. It was comedy club, I'm sure, every single night at his palace and at his mansion. He was socializing. He was partying. In fact, you begin to read throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he threw incredible parties, unbelievable parties. So he's filling his life with pleasure. He's filling it, secondly, with laughter. But in the end of all of it, Solomon said, look at verse 2, at the end of verse 2, he said, what use is it? And so he's beginning to pursue this fast track in life to find joy, to please himself, but he can't find it. So thirdly, he begins to turn to alcohol. Look at it in verse 3. Interesting phrase. He said, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He turned to alcohol. And I really believe what he's describing here is social drinking. I don't think that he's describing here a life of drunkenness because look at it again in verse 3. He says, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. In other words, he began to test with alcohol. He wanted to have just enough of a buzz that would allow him to have his wisdom that would match him. And so he's turning turning towards everything other than to the person of God. And so he's testing his life first with pleasure, with laughter, with alcohol. Then he turns, as you well know, in verses 4 through 8, to material possessions. I mean, look what he said of his material possessions. Watch the language in verse 4. He said, I made great works. And you'll notice that these are all in plural. Please understand, this is not singular. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been born been born before me in Jerusalem. He said, I also gathered from myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Stop there. I mean, this guy had it all. I mean, if, if Forbes magazine existed, believe me, Solomon's not on the list. Solomon's number one. He's top of the list. I mean, this man could have anything he wanted, Any kind of material possession that he desired he would have. He was, without a shadow of a doubt, according to Second Chronicles 9.22, the richest man in the entire world. 
This guy had houses, vineyards, gardens, trees, ponds, gardens, and they're all in the plural. You say, well, what about his house? Well, if you want to talk about his house, you can turn over. We won't now. First Kings chapter 7 says that he spent 13 years to finish his home. And believe me, he's not talking about a couple crews working on his house. He had thousands of people at his disposal building the temple. And he had thousands of people at his disposal building his own home. This guy had whatever a man could want. In fact, when he says this word, for myself, it's used six different times in verses 4 through 8 alone. I mean, he had slaves, he had herds, he had flocks. Everything's in the plural. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 10, do you remember that? When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, I'm reading from the text, the house that he had built, listen to this description, the food at his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers, she said there, his stairway by which went up to the house of the Lord, It says in 1 Kings chapter 10, there was no spirit left in her. She got to his house and observed it all, and it took her breath away. She said, I didn't even know how to respond. She said, it had been told me, but when I observed this and saw the waiters and the food and the production and the vineyards and the garden and then the stairway up to the house of the Lord, there's no spirit in me. And then she said to the king, she said this, it is a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, she said, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it and behold, half was not told me. You exceed them in wisdom and prosperity, the report which I heard. I mean, I'm just telling you, fathers, this guy had it all. Imagine having that kind of access, that kind of power, that kind of influence, and everything was at his disposal. Well, that's not all. Look on number five. He had entertainment. Entertainment, chapter 2, verse 8. It says it there at the second portion of verse 8. He says, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. I mean, he had every form of entertainment at his disposal. They just come in and perform before his audience. Every night, as I mentioned, must have been a party. Number six, as you well know, there was romance. Romance. It says there in 8b, he had concubines, it says, The delight, it says, of the children of men. Now, you know from other texts, he had 700 concubines and 300 wives. So there were a thousand women at his disposal. The word that comes to my mind is is, this guy was just living the dream, as some would say it. A thousand women, and I'm sure he had the pick of any woman of his kingdom. And yet the sad, sad part of Solomon's life is it says in 1 Kings 11.4 that Solomon's wives 
turned his heart after other gods. And it says in 11.4 that his heart was not truly wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So he had everything a man could have, and yet those wives turned his heart from the Lord. So he not only had entertainment there, he had romance, number six. Number seven, he had fame. Fame. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, So that I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. I mean, it must have been that wherever he went, there he goes, you know. Everywhere he went in his kingdom, he was known. He said there in verse 9, I, I, I can't quite tell, but you, you'll note there that it says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me. And I suppose maybe the son even would include his father David in that. In other words, I became so great, I exceeded everyone, and maybe in the white spaces, even my father, King David. There was none who was greater than me. There was none who had greater fame than me. There was none who was known greater in life and larger than life than King Solomon. I mean, you talk about the life and the futile ambition of pleasing self. If ever a man could please self, it was Solomon. But that's not all he had is fame. He's number eight. He had intellect. Intellect. Look at verse 9. It says there at the end of verse 9, he said, Also, my wisdom remained with me. That's a fascinating thought because we know, do we not, that the Lord gave him that wisdom. We also know that the Lord gave him great wealth. So that in this one combination of man, he wasn't a guy that only inherited it. He did inherit much of it. But he also worked for much of it, as Ecclesiastes will say. But not only did he have the money, but he had wisdom to a degree that went alongside that. So this guy is the virtual renaissance man with owning everything a man could ever have. And yet something is wrong. Something is sadly wrong. You'd wonder, hey, if a guy had all this, and men, if you had all this, and fathers, if you had all this, and if you could buy all your kids all the stuff you ever wanted, was it enough for Solomon? Would it be enough for your children? Would it be enough for your grandchildren? Did it satisfy Solomon? Well, let Solomon answer that. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. He said, then I considered that all my hands had done, and the toil which I had expanded in, expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after when and there is nothing to be gained under the sun. He said all is vanity and he's going to say that throughout the book. It's an incredible admission there. After all that he had, he said all is vanity. In other words, it's worthless. It's, It's nothing. It's incredible. He's out to please himself, and he can please himself in every conceivable way, and yet it did not satisfy him. Fathers, why don't you tape chapter 5 to your mirror? Look over at chapter 5. Tape this to your mirror and memorize it. Here's what Solomon said in chapter 5 in verse 10. He said that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Solomon said, this also is vanity. In other words, if you love money, 
You'll never be satisfied with the money. If you love wealth, if you love your income, he said that's just another form of vanity. It's nothing. It's meaningless, if you will. Look at verse 11 of chapter 5. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes and to look on? Listen, fathers, you will never, ever reach a point where you have enough. Ever. I mean, you'd think Solomon would have reached it. You would have think that he would have said, I've arrived. You would have think that he would have had an image of himself put out on his temple. But he says here that it's all vanity. I mean, I think theologian Mick Jagger, no, he's not really, but Mick Jagger said it so well, did he not? Regarding man's pursuit of elusive satisfaction in his hit song in 1965. 50 years ago, he sang, I just can't get no, what? Satisfaction. Listen, Mick Jagger can sing that, but that's not new. 31 centuries ago, Solomon said, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And the simple truth is, fathers, we brought nothing into the world and you can't take anything out of the world. In fact, someone has appropriately said, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. You can't take it with you. J.C. Ryle, the great man of God, the great Puritan, said all is not gold that glitters. All is not good that tastes sweet. All is not real pleasure that pleases for a time. He said, go and take your fill of earthly pleasures, if you will. He said, you will never find your heart satisfied with them. He said, there is an empty place there which nothing but God can fill. You will find, as Solomon did by experience, that earthly pleasures are but a vain show. Ryle said, vanity and vexation of spirit, whited sepulchers full of ashes and corruption within. He said, better write poison on all earthly pleasures. He said, the most lawful of them must be used with moderation. All of them are soul-destroying if you give them your hearts. End of quote. What a, what a lesson. I mean, this is his ambition. Is that your ambition? I'm thinking of what the Lord said in Luke 12, 15, when he said, beware and be on guard against every form of greed. Jesus said there, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. In fact, look back, will you, just at Ecclesiastes 1. Look what he said there. I mean, he opened his book, I think you well know, in 1-2, Vanity of Vanities, says the preacher, okay? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But here's what Solomon said in 1-8. He said, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with Hearing what has been is what will be. What a statement on life there. That the eye is not satisfied with seeing. No wonder the book of Proverbs, the writer said, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. It says in Proverbs 23, verse 3, cease from your consideration of it. 
When you set your eyes on it, it is gone, for well certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. So Solomon said on the futile nature of pleasing self, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It is utter futility to seek satisfaction apart from God. That's his assessment on life. You say, well, is that how the book ends? No. You say, did Solomon ever learn the key secret in life? And my answer is, yes, I really believe he did. You say, where? Well, look all the way to the end of the book, chapter 12. Chapter 12. And I take you from the futile ambition of pleasing self to secondly the fulfilling ambition of pleasing God. And and this is an amazing place in the Scripture. It is an amazing admission from King Solomon because his ambition of pleasing self towards the end of his life was turned to the fulfilling ambition of pleasing God. Look what he said when his life was over, almost over, or near the end. It says in verse 13, the end of the matter. He says, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I love that statement there. He said, opening in verse 13, here's the end of of the matter. Another translation says, here's the conclusion when it's all been heard. And the end of the matter and the conclusion of the matter is to fear God and to keep his commandments. And beloved, herein lies the secret of our purpose today of a godly father. A godly father It's not a man who's assessed success in this life and in his raising of his children. The success of a godly man, the success of a godly father, the secret of a godly father is to be a God-fearing man and blameless, okay? And this fulfilling ambition of pleasing God is pretty simple. It's marked by three declarations, okay? Three declarations. The the first two declarations are commands, okay? The last declaration in verse 14 explains why the first two declarations need to be followed, okay? So he's going to tell us to fear God, number one. Number two, he's going to say, keep his commandments. And then the third declaration is, he's going to show you the motive and the reason and the explanation why you ought to follow the first two. But look at the first declaration. He says there in verse 13, to fear God. To fear God. Now, the question would remain for us in verse 13. What does it mean to to fear God. It's, it's rather, it's not easy to explain what that is. It might even be described more than you can define it, okay? I think you can define it, but it might be that a description of it 
is better and easier to see, but it's not easy. But if you ask me biblically, what does it mean to fear God? I mean, what do you think it means? And certainly, women, this, is, this injunction is for you too, right? But it's Father's Day. But what does it mean to fear God? If, if, if I just gave you a, a working biblical concept of it, it means to respect God. How, how do you say that? It just uh, to, to honor God. It's the ideal in the scripture of revering God. In other words, God in his character, we sang it this morning, is holy, holy, holy. Okay? In other words, that's a description of who he is. And we can seek to define it as respect, honor, and reverence of God. But a better way even in the defining of it, is to describe it. And when somebody encountered the person and the character and the majesty and the holiness and the wrath of God, there was an appropriate response of sinfulness, weightiness, awesomeness in the Scripture. In fact, let me see if I, can, if I could describe it you, you, by way of picture. You remember certainly when Isaiah was in the temple that day and when the thresholds of the temple begin to shake and the glory of God begin to fill that place and the seraphim were crying out to one another. You remember, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Do you remember that? And I've often been struck by that because I always thought he was thrice holy because of the Trinity. But it's not. It's just a way that the Jewish people in describing an event talked about God being thrice holy. I really don't think it's referring to the Trinity. I was just thinking that here, there, the writer is saying holy, holy, holy. Holy. In other words, he's so holy, it's beyond us. And that particular day when Isaiah was in the temple, you remember when he saw God reveal himself, do you remember what his first response was? That's really what I'm getting at. Do you remember when he opened his mouth? Remember? What did he say? Woe is what? Is me. That's the fear of God. The fear of God is when you come face to face with his character and with his majesty and in his glory and your only appropriate response to it is, is, is a woe, if you will. He, he was in trouble. It's a respect. It's an honor. It's a reverence for God. It then flows out and putting God at the center of your life. Paul Tripp, in trying to describe it, said, what is the fear of God? He said, it is the non-negotiable motivator of the spiritual person. He has a single motivation in his life, to live so as to please his Lord. He does not live for his own pleasure or the pleasure of others. He does not live for what he can possess. He does... He does what he does because God is and God has spoken. This is the sole guidance system for his existence. I like that. When you walk in the fear of God, he becomes the guidance system for your existence. 
So if you're just taking the thought of an illustration, you get into a car and you, you pop in on your phone or your GPS an address because you want it to navigate and guide you to the place where you are going. Here, the inner compass of a woman of God and the inner compass of a man of God is that his guidance system for his existence is to walk in the fear of God. Tripp said he does what he does not because someone is watching or out of fear of the consequences, but ultimately because of a deep, worshipful love and reverence for God. Tripp said that the thought of knowingly and purposefully disobeying him is unthinkable. So here's what Solomon said. Listen, I'm pleading with you, men. At the end of his life, after having everything a man could ever want, he said the conclusion and the end of all the matter is to fear God. Now, this is not a new theme for him here at the end of 12. Would you look back in chapter 3? He's exposed this throughout. Look at chapter 3. And he he mixes truth in there in between his painful autobiography. But he said in chapter 3, verse 14, he said, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so the people, so that people fear before him. We ought to walk in the fear of the Lord. Look over at chapter 5, just on the next page. He said there in verse 7, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one whom you must fear. He's the one you must fear. Look over at chapter 7. I'll say it there again in verse 18. He said, It is good In 7.18, that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not from your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. In other words, as you fear God, you'll see in wisdom what to take and withhold. And you put your eyes and set it on him. Look at over at chapter 8. He says it again in verse 12. He said, though a sinner does an evil a hundred times in 8.12 and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So this is the testimony of this book. It's the fear of the Lord. In fact, you know that it says in Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But I, I like how one Puritan put it. He said, of the fear of the Lord, he said, His smile is to be our greatest delight and His frown our greatest distress. Listen, when you fear God, His smile upon you is what gives you joy, and his frown is what brings you distress. But here, when people encounter the character of God, they feel a sense of awe before him. In fact, let me see if I could describe it one more way to you. Look over to Luke chapter 5. Peter encountered this. I was thinking about this, because it's really in some ways hard to define 
it's, it's easier understood when described. But do you remember that scene in Luke chapter 5 when it, Peter was, they, they were calling his first disciples. And it says in 5.1, on one occasion when the crowd was pressing in to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and the two boats came by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Peter's, of course. He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Simon, put out into the deep and let your, down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. I mean, it's one thing for Jesus to tell a normal Jewish man to put out the nets. It's another thing for him to tell a professional fisherman, Peter, to put out the nets when Peter is a professional master fisherman. It's what he did for a living. But you'll notice there that when he told him to do it, he said, I'll let down the nets. Verse 6, but when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking and they signaled by their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats and so that they began to sink. But when Simon peeped, Peter saw it. He fell down on his knees saying, depart from me, for I am a what? A sinful man, O Lord. And I just think it's interesting that when he encountered the person of Christ, God in the flesh, and he revealed an aspect of his power to him, Peter instantly knew that he was a sinful man. But I draw you down to verse 10. It said, So also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be, what? Afraid. In other words, fear arose in his heart because he knew he was standing in the presence of a great person. And here it was God in the flesh. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. Now you understand that fear and that idea and that concept is of being afraid. We would say biblical fear is, is out of reverence and honor and respect who, for, who, for who God is, is where the fear comes from. It's not just being afraid of something because you're afraid in the dark or whatever it might be. It's a fear that comes out of reverence for who God is. So here's my point. Psalm 25, 14. Psalm 25, 14. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. So I called it the secret of being a godly father. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. In fact, this is what the text says throughout Psalm 147, verse 11. The Lord favors those who fear him. Psalm 31, 19. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. I read it this morning to Michael. Deuteronomy 10, 12. Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in his ways. So listen, men, his smile ought to be our greatest delight. His frown ought to be our greatest distress. So here, as he concludes his book, the first of three declarations is he says, fear God. But then he gives a second declaration. Look back at Ecclesiastes now. 
look back. He will give him a, a second declaration there at the end. And I think you know it well in verse 13. He told him to fear God. And then he said, secondly, to keep his, what? Commandments. Now, you say, what's the link there? Are they just separate? One declaration is fear God. The next one is keep his commandments. Let me explain that. Okay? To keep his commandments, write this down, is what it means to fear God. If you fear God, you'll keep his commandments. So if you, if you don't want it to be nebulous, okay, the keeping of his commandments is our response to fearing God. So men who fear God keep his commandments. Young men who fear God keep his commandments. Godly fathers who fear God keep his commandments. Grandfathers who fear God keep his commandments. Godly women who fear God keep his commandments. I'm thinking of Jesus in John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. He said in 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So here, to keep his commandments explains what it means to fear God. You will know that your daughter fears God when she obeys God. You will know that your son is developing a fear of God when they obey God. Our goal in raising of our seven children was to make sure we trust at the age of 13 that they would no longer want to answer to mom and dad. They would want to answer to God in a vertical relationship. Because we wanted them to know that his smile was their greatest delight and his frown was their greatest distress but you fear God by keeping His commandments. And if I can just drive this home to you, let me show you one illustration. Would you look over to Genesis quickly? Genesis quickly. You remember the account with Abraham there? And that marvelous account with Abraham, it says in chapter 22, you remember when he took Isaac certainly up to the mountain? Certainly you remember that. And he prepared the altar, he prepared the wood, He prepared all that was needed for that altar. Can you imagine binding up, tying up your teenage son, wrapping him up in ropes and so forth? And it says in 22.9, when they came to the place that God had told him, Abraham built the altar and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And in 22.10, Abraham reached out his hand, And he took the knife to slaughter his son. And I think I've shared that with you there. Is that in the Hebrew, when it says that he reached out his hand and took the knife, the Hebrew has, if you will, the hand coming down. He not only reached for it and took it, is the way we would kind of read it, but in his mind, Abraham was coming down to obey God because God told him to sacrifice the son. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord, as you know it, called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you, what? Fear God. So how did he fear God? He obeyed God. 
And God stopped him in the process because he said, now I know in your heart that you really fear God because in Abraham, he was coming down with the act. There's a lot of people who can say they fear God, but if you really fear God, you're going to obey God. Now, look back in Ecclesiastes real quickly, because this is an unbelievable statement. Look what he says. You say, who does this apply to? Well, the, the text will tell us. It says, it says to fear God and keep his commandments. And this is an incredible phrase. Verse 13 of chapter 12. For this is the whole, what? Duty of man. And it's an amazing statement. In other words, this is the most important thing for our purposes today that a father can do. Fear God, okay? Now, it's interesting because one of the ways you can translate that in verse 13, for this is, um, you, you could translate it this way. It says the whole duty of man. You could even translate it, this is the whole duty for every man. So in other words, as Solomon gets done with the end of his autobiography, he says, I want you to fear God. I want you to keep his commandments for this is the duty of every man. You say, well, how so? How does this apply to every man? The next verse, look at it. He links it there with a clause. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether it is good or evil. And so here... Here is the motive for the previous two commands, and we'll finish here. His third declaration is the principle to be applied. God will bring every act to judgment. God is the judge, and this is how he leaves the book, does he not? Genesis 18.25 says that God is the judge of all the earth. Okay? It says in Ecclesiastes 3.17 that God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. He will judge every man. And I don't think he's just talking to believers here. He's talking about judging all. In fact, look what Solomon said. Just turn back if you need to. One page in chapter 11, verse 9. I remember reading this for the first time when I was a young boy. And I was like, wow, until I got to the end of it. Chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice. It says, O young man in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Wow. But then he says, but no, for all these things, God will bring you into what? Judgment. You're going to stand before God. You say, well, how does that work, Scott? How does it work for judgment? Well, this way. The righteous will be rewarded and the wicked will be judged. But every man will stand before God. Now, it could be that when he says this in 1214, that God will bring every deed into judgment, that some say that he might be talking in the present day. And there certainly could be some truth to that. But I really believe that what he's looking to here is the future. He's describing the future of both unbeliever and believer alike. So, well, how does that work? Well, the unbeliever we know from Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15, will stand before God at the great white throne judgment of God. Every single person will stand before God. The unbeliever, Revelation 20, will stand before God at that great white throne judgment and give an account for his life. And if you're here this morning without Christ, you will stand before God by the authority of the Scripture. 
If you are a believer, you will stand before God as well. You will. You will stand before Christ, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, at the Bema seat judgment. So the unbeliever, the great white throne, the believer, the Bema seat judgment. God will judge both. So I think he comes to the end of the book and he says this applies to every man. This is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. Why, Solomon? For God will bring every act to judgment. I mean, this is the teaching of the scripture. Romans 2, 6 says, He will render to each according to his works. You will stand before God even at the Bema seat and give an account of your works. Romans 14, 12 says, Each of us will give an account of himself to God. You will stand before God. I will stand before God. Maybe that's why Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. But this is the theme of scripture. We'll all stand before God. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. In other words, there's a judgment coming. The believer will stand before Christ. You say, how so, Scott? Well, I'm just reading the scripture. We must all, every one of you women, will stand before Christ. Every one of you young men will stand before Christ. Every father will stand before Christ. Every grandfather, grandmother will stand before Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You'll give an account of your life to God. And for the believer, this will be, I believe, a, a judgment of rewards. Okay? You say, but Scott, I thought there's no condemnation. Yes, I know there's no condemnation, but you're going to give an account of your life. You'll stand before God. I will stand before God. And he will dispense rewards depending with what you've done with the spiritual gifts that he's entrusted to your stewardship. That's what it says. That's the believer's reward. The unbeliever will stand before God. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with the angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. With the unbeliever, he will begin to itemize everything they've done in their life. And they will be judged based on what they've done. Frightening. I'm thinking of Revelation 20. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. No wonder Solomon said this. He said, listen, when it's all said and done, fear God and keep his commandments, because we're all going to stand before him. In fact, he goes on. Look at verse 14 as we finish. He said that God will bring every deed into judgment. And then look what he says. And every secret thing, whether it is good or evil. In other words, whatever you cover, God will uncover in that day. And what you have done openly and what you have done secretly will come to light. And it says in Romans 2.16, God will judge the secrets of men in Christ Jesus. So this is the clear teaching of the scripture. We're going to stand before him and we're going to give an account and 
You say, but Scott, I thought there's no condemnation. Oh, there's no condemnation, but you'll give an account for your stewardship. You'll give an account for your money. You'll give an account for the spiritual gift that he gave you at salvation. Have you used it? He'll say that I entrusted these five things to you. Have you gone out and made five others with them and doubled them? I mean, in fact, Ryle put it this way. He said, resolve never to forget the eye of God. He said in everywhere, in every house, in every field, in every room, in every company, alone or in a crowd, the eye of God is always upon you. And he quotes Proverbs 15, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, holding the evil and the good, and they are eyes that read hearts, Ryle said, as well as action. He said, do nothing you would not like God He said, do nothing you would not like God to see. Say nothing that you would not like God to hear. Write nothing that you would like you would not like God to read. Go no place where you would not like God to find you. Read no book of which of which you would not like God to say, show it to me. Never spend your time in such a way that you would not like to have God say, What are thou doing? It's just wow. What what a what a What an admonition to us. Did you hear in 2012, 530 runners were poised on the starting line for the Heaton Harriers 10K race through this place called Newcastle, England. And as customary, there was a cyclist or what they would call a rabbit who was stated to ride ahead of the front runners to lead them, and the rabbit, you know, on a bike wearing a fluorescent yellow top, pedaled ahead moments before the starting pistol sounded. And at the crack of the gun, the racers charged off enthusiastically. However, shortly after, the rabbit and a small pack of front runners kind of crested a blind rise and turned left. A local cyclist who perchance was donned kind of with a fluorescent yellow uh, cycling jersey pedaled briefly into the route and then turned right. So this this other racer runner just came in and just turned another way and the obliging runners dutifully followed him on a meandering, seemingly random route through Newcastle until the biker serendipitously crossed the actual route again, having taken what was in effect a substantial shortcut. And the man who thought he was winning the race, a man by the name of Ian Hudspeth, suddenly found himself being bested by a struggling group of slow runners. And the organizers soon realized what had happened, and they promptly called everyone back to restart the race. In other words, it just it went chaotic, and the runners took the incident in good form, and there was actually a lot of laughter about the mistake, and I think laughter is an appropriate response to something as inconsequential as a 10K race. But imagine GCV, at the end of your life, you appeared before the judgment seat of Christ. And instead of hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant, you heard the words, well tried, my misguided servant. You ran aimlessly for 80 years, pouring your time and energy into inconsequential pursuits. Listen, we just got one life to live. And so I pray that we live it, beloved, in the fear of God and in the walking of his commandments. And to the man who does that, he will be blessed by God. We have only one life to live, and I pray that we live it for the fullness of his glory. Amen? Listen, here's the secret of being a godly father. Fear God and keep 
his commandments. Would you stand with me and I'll close us in prayer as you go. Fathers, heed this admonition and see yourself to give an account before the Lord. Not one out of fear per se, but one where that he will examine you and you'll give an account as we stand before him.